This is Fintech Cappuccino, your Saturday morning podcast with a pinch of espresso on the why and how of Fintech. The show is hosted by Brian van Wachem, CEO of RedSnap, and I'm Connie Dorstein, founding partner of Bankify. Hi, Brian. Hi, Con. How are things? I thought we should do something on the investment climate. Um, I mean, such unusual times post-COVID, in a war, you know, it's sort of, where's the money thing? Ah, yeah, I actually agree. I just read another major TechCrunch update today, and there's certainly some change in here. And mostly, I think, in all fairness, hot air disappearing, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But also, you know, becoming more transparent for all in, in this whole stage. Shall I reach out to Tim Levine, the CEO and lead partner at Doc Nenton in the UK? They have quite a different story because they're, they're a public fund. They, they, they treat it all slightly differently. All right, okay, well, that's a good shot. And we can also move into pros and cons of what and how it feels to be in Britain and want to be in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you nasty one. Okay, well, uh, Brian, let me call him and circle back to you. And I'll, um, but let's talk uh, money, money, money. Yeah. All right, speak to you soon. Bye bye. Soon. Bye, dear. you choose um, this particular music? It's got a lovely uh, beat. Well, it's definitely an unusual one. And I think all of us who work uh, pretty hard sometimes need to detach from reality. And I think if you can uh, listen to that song and imagine yourself uh, on a beach in Ibiza, sun going down, uh, sipping a nice cocktail, then I think it's the perfect way to uh, to unwind and detach yourself from what we all have, which is often a, a busy life, and we all aspire to have a little yeah. bit more downtime. Good, yeah. good. Right. Well, th- thankfully, the sun is shining again, Tim, so you're, you're leading us nicely in. Yes. So looking back on this uh, week, Tim, um, what news caught your eye in particular? Yeah, well, I think it's uh, we've had a lot of uh, quite depressing news in recent weeks. I think uh, stepping out of the... Uh, uh, of some of that. I think there are some really uplifting things going on, in particular the Invictus Games uh, at the moment, which uh, some of you may be aware of, uh, where you have uh, you know, wounded veterans uh, competing. Um, you know, interestingly, I've got a kind of long uh, history with, um, uh, with both Prince William and Prince Harry. Many years ago, uh, I helped uh, set up their Royal Foundation uh, here in the UK. Um, and it was very much about what should the next generation uh, of royals engage in from a charitable point of view uh, and really finding their passion areas uh, and clearly uh, the military and wounded veterans was one huge passion area of uh, prince harry and the invictus games has gone from uh, strength to strength and it's fantastic to see it in different cities and countries and uh, it's had some uh, you know great coverage this week and i've really enjoyed kind of watching and listening to some of the inspiring stories that have come out of that yeah. cool yeah. we could have a separate podcast on that one but uh, that, well, that's and it's a bridge between london and amsterdam because it's taking place in amsterdam this year so yeah absolutely yeah uh, i think uh, i think that's great and you know, it's it's one of those, uh, you know, opportunities early on, we didn't quite know how big it was going to be. And it's really taken on a life of its own, which is ultimately what you want it to do. Uh, and it's become yeah. self-sufficient. And I think it's inspiring, uh, you know, a lot of people to do great things. Yeah. 
and standing up in tough times and sort of not giving in and uh, keep going, courageous. It's good, a good message and lesson for us at this particular moment in time. Uh, absolutely. Thanks, uh, Tim. Tim Levine started his professional career at Bain & Company, where he worked in Moscow and Sydney before returning to the UK to start up juice bar brand Crush. He lived the startup life as a founding employee of Flutter.com, which later merged into Betfair. In 2009, he founded Augmentum Capital, a dedicated fintech investor which holds positions in companies like Tide, Awoka, Cushion and many, many more. Augmentum is the only listed fintech-focused venture capital firm in the UK, launched on the LSE in 2018. Augmentum and Procure Ears Listener offers patient capital and support to early and later stage growing fintech businesses around banking, insurance, asset management, but really the wider financial services arena across Europe. With a commitment to both the World Economics Youth Forum Global Leaders and Innovate Finance, Tim is well known for earning and returning in fintech. For the sake of full transparency, I am a non-executive director at Augmentum Fintech PLC. Tim, welcome again. An investment trust as the vehicle for VC activities is quite unique. Could you introduce your fund and explain the rationale behind the strategic choice, please? Absolutely, Brian, and, and thank you uh, to you and Connie for inviting me on the uh, on the podcast. Uh, you know, I think if you uh, if you think about venture capital and backing the next generation of, of great ideas and entrepreneurs, when you look at the structure of venture capital itself over the last forty years. Uh, for an industry that uh, champions innovation, it hasn't really innovated itself very much. And, you know, being a, a very long-term entrepreneur and having been backed by a VC in Internet 1.0, when we launched Augmentum Fintech PLC, um, you know, almost four years to the day, we listed it on the London Stock Exchange. It's a closed-ended uh, permanent capital vehicle. So, you know, in effect... Uh, shareholders will um, apply for equity at the prevailing net asset value, and we will use that capital to deploy, um, you know, across a number of uh, fintech companies with no specific end life. I think if you think about traditional GPLP funds, they typically have a 10-year life. There's an investment period of three to four years, and then you spend the next five to six years working those companies and ultimately exiting them. This just gives us the, uh, the opportunity to one, be patient when we need to be patient, but also to be able to grow the vehicle to real scale and have a significant amount of permanent capital and not be in that perennial cycle of fundraising. And I think we're all looking for differentiation in this market in the current days um, where capital is much more of a commodity. And I think for us being a specialist in both FinTech, but also having a somewhat unique uh, structure that gives uh, that permanent capital and that ability to be patient uh, does allow you to be somewhat differentiated in a quite noisy market. Yeah, well, uh, that's quite okay. And also, uh, so Sequoia is also um, uh, getting in there. So uh, you're probably uh, ahead of the pack. So, But can you give us some pros and cons of being public? Yes. Look, I mean, I think for us in a, uh, you know, if you think about uh, the pros of this, I've already highlighted some of them. Uh, permanent capital uh, is important. I think entrepreneurs, as we know, don't always work to a defined timeline. They don't always align specifically with traditional fund structures. And ultimately, if, if a company is performing well and has the ability and desire to remain private for longer, then why have a 
uh, misalignment with your investors who are looking for exit so they can raise their next fund. So I think it certainly kind of allows you to be, in my view, more aligned with your underlying portfolio companies. I think, you know, the flip side is, of course, being public, there is nowhere to hide. We are, uh, you know, managing private assets. And of course, once you raise a traditional private fund, you raise the capital and off you go and deliver it. And at the point in which you return the money or not, you will be determined whether you're successful or not. We have to report to the market twice a year. Uh, we report our aggregated net asset value. And uh, as we know, in venture, performance doesn't uh, happen overnight. And so you would, you know, in an ideal world, I'd like to say to our investors, give me five years, let me go away and come back uh, and let you know how we're doing, but you don't have the luxury of that. So there is always that measure uh, and visibility of performance, um, but ultimately um, you learn to adapt and uh, you know, keeps you on your toes. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, being public, I mean, does it change your portfolio selection as well? Not really. I mean, I think from our perspective, we're very focused on what we would define as kind of series A and B uh, pan-European fintech companies. I think what we have, though, is the opportunity to be uh, flexible, to be opportunistic. Um, we don't have to just be focused on those two uh, particular stages, because when you have this permanent capital vehicle, you can be driven by your internal rate of return rather than a multiple of money. So if we see a very compelling proposition where you know a large growth investor recognizes that we can bring something to the table, we have domain expertise, but the exit path might be 18, 24 months. A typical venture fund focused on series A and B would sit there saying that doesn't fit our mandate. But if that's going to deliver a compelling return to our investors, then we can do that and recycle that money. So uh, it allows us to be opportunistic. And I think, uh, you know, that's one of the attractions or one of the motivations that uh, that I had in, in launching this listed vehicle back in uh, 2018. Okay, Tim, moving on to the theme of our podcast, where is the money? Um you know, end of year, we talk a lot, we look back, we look forward. And then, but between the end of the year and now, a lot of changed as well. Eh? We live in sort of slightly weird and unsettling times. I mean, we've, I think we all got used to complexity and uncertainty. But now, you know, we got out of COVID. We thought, hey, this is it. Then the war fell upon us, sanctions. You know, what does all of this, in your opinion, mean to investing, but probably even first to the fintech scene? Well, we've had an incredible couple of years, 2020, 2021, in terms of uh, not just venture capital, but fintech uh, itself. Um, there is more money that has flowed into this market than ever before. And I think there's a real recognition that this is an asset class that is real, uh, it's substantive, uh, and it's starting to uh, kind of create some real kind of breakout winners. I think the reality for 2022 is we're not going to see a year like we had in 2021. Uh, there's no question that the market overheated from a valuation point of view. And I think as a long-term specialist investor, that's not necessarily a bad thing. If I'm perfectly frank with you, we see uh, in, you know, in bubbles, in bull markets, tourist money come into the sector, um, investors looking for exposure at any cost. Uh, and that's not particularly a healthy thing uh, for the market. So I think in the long term, we've got uh, an exciting future ahead. There is a long way to go in terms of disruption to come in financial services. 
but I think we're going to see a moderation in valuations, in particular at the later stage. But we have more investors, more capital than ever before, both in venture and fintech. And I think for a sector that still is in single digits in terms of penetration in the overall market, that is much needed because we were undercapitalized as, a, uh, as an industry. Now, here's a personal observation. You may put me in my place, but I've always had this thing. And this morning, I got slightly served by uh, the news on the radio. I mean, Netflix had slightly falling user numbers, takeaway and food delivery, etc. slightly starting to struggle. My thesis has always been that consumers are terribly fickle, and particularly when stuff is nearly for free. And so I've always had more confidence in the fintech scene um, in the B2B space and in the B2C space. Do you see that? Do you see a difference in when you look forward to uh, an interest in B2B as well? I think initially as well, investors found it sort of harder to get their head around because you really need to understand the scene. How do you view this, Tim? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. I mean, personally, I'm a I'm a B2C uh, guy. I, I kind of obviously. Uh, have a long pedigree in that space. But when I think about our broader team, there is definitely increasing bias towards uh, B2B. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, and I think, again, we're seeing, um, you know, a lot of kind of breakthrough players uh, in that space. I think if you look historically uh, at businesses um, that, you know, that exit, you have a higher proportion of quality B2B businesses uh, that exit um, at, you know, consistent multiples. Um, and I think when you think about uh, bubbles and when you think about bull markets, it's often those B2C businesses that achieve those um, unrealistic uh, multiples yeah. that can't be sustained. Some of them are absolutely extraordinary businesses. Yeah. I mean, Netflix is a fantastic business. The question is, what is its true value and what's the right multiple for it to trade on its uh, you know, next 12 months uh, earnings? Yeah. So I think we, you know, we see some fantastic businesses in the B2C space. I think the financial services incumbents historically have done a pretty lousy job offering consumers great propositions, um, both from a digital perspective and with price transparency. And so I think there are a lot of fantastic B2C fintech propositions that consumers have embraced and adopted. Ultimately, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. What's the right price for that? And how much do I believe in its future yeah. growth? And I think one of so what is a what is a good what is a good example of a B two C and a B two B that you sort of uh, and Augmentum believed in and how are they faring? Um, yeah, well, often in the world of venture, it depends which day of the week that you uh, that you ask your, <laughs> your your portfolio manager exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if if I think about some of our our B two B investments, um, you know, one business which you know I think has been hugely successful and continues to thrive has been uh, a business called Onfido, which is um, KYC AML facial recognition. It has become really the platform of choice to onboard customers for both fintechs, but also traditional financial services, whether it's the likes of Revolut, Monzo, Tide, Robinhood, Coinbase. They've all chosen to work with the likes of, of Onfido, but increasingly you're now seeing the traditional financial services incumbents embrace and engage with the likes of Onfido as well. And, uh, you know, I think when you see that crossover in terms of the traditional financial services players, feeling much less nervous, much less reticent about partnering um, with these B2B fintechs who frankly are there to help them remain competitive uh, you know, against some of these B2C uh, players uh, in the fintech space. And I often say our job as an investor 
is to back some of these B2B players, helping the incumbents stay competitive, as well as back some of these B2B, B2C players Absolutely. who are trying to uh, disrupt the traditional space. So, I have to come clean here, Tim. I'm always a little bit wary of men and women who direct a company on the basis of spreadsheets, right? Uh, from a distance. So entrepreneurs feel a different pressure and they are with their feet in the mud, uh, juggling uh, with their clients, their product roadmaps, scarcity of talent and empty pipelines. So to what extent do you feel the same pressure? I mean, I've been an entrepreneur since the uh, since the mid '90s, uh, Brian. So I think I can really empathise, and a lot of the experiences that you know founders experience really resonates with us. And again, I think that was lacking in VC 10, 15 years ago, where you didn't have enough entrepreneurial DNA in the sector. I think that's changing now as generations come out of entrepreneurship and feel that they can bring something to the uh, uh, to the investment uh, space as well. So I think we've got a much better generation here in Europe um, of VCs that complement what we had before with that real entrepreneurial DNA. And I think you you and I will know very well, it's very hard to manage venture businesses on spreadsheets. A lot of them uh, <laughs> don't have much of a track record to be able to kind of uh, fill out those, uh, uh, those cells. So uh, you know, ultimately, you've got to be able to empathize. You've got to be able to adapt and react. Um, there are some very common challenges that uh, founders, entrepreneurs have uh, in the space, irrespective of the sector that they're focusing on. Uh, and I think our job is to you know, be able to step in um, and help as and when those uh, challenges appear. So if you step in, right, I mean, if at all, I don't know to what extent you're hands-on, but so on what signals do you as an investor decide to take action or step in or intervene? Or can you give us some examples on that one? Yeah, I mean, I would say a really good investor board member, and we do tend to uh, play an active role in our businesses as you know, board observers or, or board directors, is to be preemptive. It's not to wait until the crisis happens. Uh, I think the benefits of gray hair and having multiple portfolio, you see kind of common challenges and problems and you can see the trends. Uh, and ultimately our job is to step in and whether that is helping them hire when there are some real scale up challenges, seeing the gaps of what's coming 12, 18 months ahead. Um, you know, fundraising is one area where investors can add huge value. Um, can, you know, we do this every day. We see thousands of uh, investor pitches over the years. And if you're an entrepreneur, you don't see that. And you, you know, you know the right type of investors, uh, you know, the right type of storytelling, and you can really work with the companies to, you know, to help them uh, maximize and optimize for that as well. And just connections, again, comes back with the benefits of being in the market a long time. You know a lot of people. And if you're a first-time entrepreneur, uh, you don't have the same network. And ultimately, it is about connecting. And I think if you can really help connect um, both to you know, future uh, staff members, whether it's to mentors, whether it's to board members, whether it's to other investors, you can really add some practical uh, value well ahead of the curve. And what do you reckon is the most challenging uh, stage of a company? Is it the startup, the scale up? Is it sort of, you know, I've been there a few times and I've personally found, for instance, that after 150 staff, you become a real serious business. 
but that was my personality. Then it becomes really difficult because you've got to embed processes and become more formal, etc. But you see so many companies. What do you think is the most challenging stage for a founder entrepreneur? Yeah, I would tend to agree with you, Connie. I think the Series B plus is where it requires a very different skill set. And it's very challenging for founders to make that leap. I can you know, go back to my own experience at Betfair, where we were a bunch of 20-somethings uh, that grew from 40 to 40, 400 to 1400. And frankly, we were clueless. And rightly so, they brought some grown-ups in uh, to help manage the business. So um, you know, I think the, the seed in Series A is very much about inspiring. It's about narrative. It's about storytelling. It's about inspiring your team and building something out. The transition from Series B to Series C is putting some real meat on the bone. And ultimately, when you go to raise that growth round, the storytelling, frankly, the, the business should tell the story itself rather than you. And, you know, that is when you're managing three, 400 people, it requires a really different skill set. I'm pretty hopeless at that. I love building businesses. Um, and if I was in that position again, you know, post Series B, I would absolutely look to bring in a professional scale-up CEO. But at the same time, there are many, you know, founders that want to take on that challenge and, and some thrive. Um, but it is a... It or is can't a, step over their own ambition and ego. Absolutely. Very often self-delusion and not enough self-criticism. Yeah. And I think your, like, job as I an, your job as an investor is to work with, with that, you know, with that founder and help him or her um, adapt or you know, identify some of those shortcomings and fill in some of those gaps as well. It comes back to, Brian, your question before, what can you do uh, as an experienced investor? You can see where the gaps are in the founding team and you can really help fill, um, fill them because we want exactly. our founding teams to succeed. And at day one, you can't always um, you know, uh, change out the team. Uh, you're backing a team. Nope. Uh, you're not bringing <laughs> no. in your own management team. You're absolutely backing them to succeed. I think yeah. that's one of the hard things about hard things, right? <laughs> it's sure. Sure. Uh, Tim, coming back, uh, I mean, Augmentum is uh, London Stock Exchange listed, but you obviously have very much an international uh, ambition. You're looking at Europe. Um, uh, obviously, uh, you know, London and America are seen as the hubs in the world, Europe, particularly when it comes to, to capital. Europe has a few hubs. Amsterdam likes to think they're part of it. Um, but how do you view the evolving uh, sort of European ecosystem and its place on the global stage? Do you see it as a real opportunity or a me too? I'm hugely bullish about European fintech. Great. I think um, over the last 10 years, we've seen... Uh, a dramatic evolution. We've seen increasing depth of talent in major um, you know, European ecosystems. And what breeds that is success. So when you have an outlier success story in Amsterdam, in an Adyen, or a, uh, you know, Klarna in Stockholm, or a TransferWise in Tallinn, you know, that money that uh, is realized flows through, both through employees, both through early investors, and it creates these mini ecosystems. And I think we've seen that in London. Uh, and despite the fact that we're no longer in the EU, we're still very much part of Europe. Um, and we and, think so. Yeah, we hope so too. Um, and I think it's cross-pollinating. So I think we've got some great centers where you've got some real depth now in Europe. And I would point to Paris, uh, Berlin, uh, Amsterdam, Stockholm, Tallinn, all centers where you can sit there and find 
a handful of outlast uh, fintech success stories that are breeding the next generation of fintech businesses. And so for us as an investor, uh, increasingly, we're spending much more time across the continent. Um, and I think there, as I said, I think there is a much uh, broader breadth of talent. And that's great, um, you know, for European fintech. And I think it will continue for the for the coming years. Yeah. Hey, and, and no fintech uh, podcast, of course, uh, without mentioning the C word crypto. So now this is obviously a quite new area for, for bigger investors. Um, May I ask you, what's your personal take on crypto or Web 3.0 or the metaverse or all of the above? I mean, do you have a vision on it and, and what is it? I've always been intrigued by it. I've been a holder of crypto for, uh, for over a decade. I think the question as, a, as an investor uh, for a publicly listed vehicle is what is the right approach? Uh, and I think with any emerging technology, there are compelling use cases and there are a number that, you know, won't survive the test of time. So, pers yeah, personally, I'm a believer. Um, but the question is for us, you know, we've taken a view as a fund uh, to invest in the infrastructure, in the picks and shovels. We believe that, you know, a regulated environment is the only way forward. Uh, you know, we are backing businesses that have, you know, a long-term view, whether it's working with the likes of uh, Gemini uh, in the US or Tesseract in Finland uh, or Parify, who are one of the leading DeFi funds uh, globally. We're really looking to work with kind of best in class. Uh, and ultimately, uh, you know, I think over the next two to three years, you will see how the industry kind of really evolves. And I think we're seeing it in 2022 in particular, where regulators across Europe are engaging in a way that they haven't before. They can no longer ignore it. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, you know, crypto is here to stay forever. And I think we can all be skeptical about certain aspects, whether it's you know, the NFT market, elements of the NFT market. Um, but fundamentally, there are some compelling use cases for a lot of these technologies. Um, and, you know, our job is to pick those businesses that are going to be here for the long term that really understand the underlying uh, proposition uh, and aren't swept away by the hype. And I think if we can you know, do that as a fund, then I think we can give our investors some um, good uh, diversified exposure in the space without doing anything too exotic. Then um, fintech. Uh, Tim, I'd like to sort of take a, a look back as well. I, I love all the forward-looking uh, statements, and that's obviously what you're most worried about as an investor. But I want to go slightly philosophical here and say, you know, after 10 years plus in fintech, uh, five very related years, do you believe, we touched on it briefly, do you believe fintech lives up to its promise of giving more people and businesses access to the real economy, making things fairer and more transparent. I think those were the real, real promises and, and creating more competition. What is your take on this? Absolutely. Um, I think there is still a long way to go. As I said earlier, we're, we're early in the journey. Um, I think some markets are further ahead. Um, but I think what we've certainly seen during the pandemic is that huge accelerated digital adoption. And I think, uh, you know, consumers have really embraced some of the propositions uh, out there across kind of Europe and the US and beyond. And I think we can start to see in some of these emerging markets as well. You, you only need to look to, uh, to Africa and see some of the fintech propositions there that have really kind of taken hold. Um, and that really has, 
Um, you know, I, I think you can, uh, <laughs> I mean, even if you're looking at you know, lending or you're looking at the likes of, of Flutterwave, I mean, Africa isn't, uh, you know, isn't our area, uh, you know, area of expertise, but it's hard not to look at, uh, you know, admiration at the likes of M-Pesa in Kenya in terms of kind of, you know, money transfer as well. Um, you know, these are really kind of offering kind of low, low cost, accessible propositions. Um, and, you know, Connie, if you look at the financial incumbents today and you listen to the rhetoric, you only need to listen to, to Jamie Dimon and how his language has changed over the past couple of years. Uh, I think in his previous, um, uh, you know, uh, message to shareholders, he opened up saying we should all be scared shitless of fintech. And, you know, ultimately it has changed and they have to up their game as well. And so they have to offer better propositions uh, at lower costs with greater transparency. So uh, I think we, we have started to fulfill a lot of the promise. I think there's just a lot more to, uh, to do over the next uh, uh, four or five years. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a little bit the same as sort of being vegetarian or not, where it's the young generation are all vegetarians now. And I always say to them, you know, you can be zealots about it and preach that everybody should be a full-time vegetarian. But if the whole world goes to being a flexitarian and only eats meat twice a week, we get a much greater impact. And that's probably the same I see in this whole fintech thing, where first people were just hopping up and down and saying, you know, neobanks will kill them all. The numbers obviously show that that is not the case. But the great thing is that that trend has made the incumbents aware of changes coming and it's coming faster than we thought. So I think ultimately, for me, that is a huge new market for fintech is to uh, you know, lay siege on this new um, sense of humility that the incumbents have like, yes, we probably can't do it without you. So I, I, think, I think that's right. And I think it, certain industries take longer to disrupt than others. And I think regulation has been a great inhibitor of, of innovation in financial services. But, you know, I just go back to my experience in the betting industry 20 years ago, where in the UK we had three companies that had 90% market share. And within a handful of years, Betfair was bigger than all three of them put together because they refused to embrace innovation. They wanted to maintain their margins. They were dismissive of the, uh, of the innovator. And I think the financial services industry has been somewhat guilty of that but they can no longer be that way. And I think if they don't uh, digitally transform, then they won't survive the next five years. And I think there are very few now that recognize that. The big challenge for them is, can they? Are they too big, too slow? Have they left it too late? And that's the big question out there where there will be some big winners from the incumbents, but also some big losers over the coming years. And then one, one final one for me before I hand you over to uh, Brian to sort of close things off. Um, ESG uh, and finance. And again, um, sometimes I'm very skeptical because suddenly everybody is measuring foot, carbon footprints and being green. And at the same time, they're still giving out huge loans to farmers. So anyway, um, where do you see good in ESG? And do you actively look for sort of at least a level of thinking around ESG in the companies you invest in? Clearly, ESG has, you know, raised its head far more in the past few years. You cannot avoid talking about it. I think what the industry is doing, and in particular being publicly listed, you have to have transparency. Um, where fintech intersects ESG is open to, is open to question. Um, for you know, for sure, 
I think in practical ways, you know, for us, um, we have to be aware of it. I think on the G, which is often in the current environment, everyone's focusing on the E. Um, I think it's critically important, both in venture, financial services and fintech to really focus on that. And that's diversity, diversity by gender, diversity by race. That's an area where we as an industry are doing far more, but continue need to continue to do uh, more over the coming 12 you know, to 15 years, where I think they say that's when we will see parity. It's taking longer than it should, but people can no longer pay lip service. It's actions. And I think transparency is a good thing um, where people can't hide behind uh, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, private cloaks that they did before uh, and you're being called out uh, across every dimension. I think, of course, with any, any emerging uh, theme, you see a lot of the same thing. So the number of, uh, you know, environmental monitoring uh, platforms out there that can truly measure um, your, whether it's your, you know, your carbon footprint or something similar, there's a lot of me too out there. And it's really understanding what the differentiation uh, is um, in the market. You're seeing a lot of these indexes uh, appear. A uh, hundred of them can't survive. Yeah. You have a handful. Oh, yeah, on pension funds and everything. And it's very hard. I think it's also one of those unique things where we really have to work together as an industry, be very collaborative and uh, before we think we have the solution. Yeah, well, uh, actually, you're triggering me, uh, Tim, on, on the diversity. So, so what's your experience with, uh, with management teams who you're investing? I mean, if it's diverse, is it different? Is it better? Is it more easy to handle? Is it, what's your experience? I think part of the challenge for us with um, diversity has been finding in particular, um, you know, female fintech founders. There is a dearth of them in Europe. Um, and what we're starting to see now is a huge amount of talent in the senior levels amongst both fintechs and venture capital funds that we think, you know, that next generation, when they exit uh, either that fund or that business, they'll be the next generation of, of entrepreneurs. So I think we're very kind of proactive in um, you know, trying to identify and find uh, you know, more diverse founders uh, to meet and engage with. Um, but the reality is there isn't enough in the market uh, and we all need to do you know, more to, uh, to stimulate that. But I'm pretty optimistic about what we're seeing uh, in the market, despite the fact, uh, rightly so, that people say we could, we could do a lot more. Um, but ultimately, I think, you know, I see it around our table in terms of our investment committee, um, you know, diversity of thinking um, comes from diversity of background by age, by, you know, by race, by gender. And I think we have a much more stimulated conversation when we have that diversity around the table. Yeah, it's quite funny. I'm, I'm just bridging because, uh, you know, you know, Tim, I climb on every stage where I can uh, preach this uh, sermon and much more so do so in practice. And I agree with you. It's not just about women, but it's also about giving young people a voice. Yeah. Uh, because if you go to events or whatever, we always love to talk to them, but you hardly ever see them on stage. So I think that's right. Uh, yeah. As Constantine said, I'm never going to be on a manual anymore with only men. I say to people, you know, I'm not going to be on an event if there's not a single speaker who comes from the next generation because we sometimes have to listen to them and not speak to them but anyway oh that's a good bridge maybe to um to uh, where i want to go with you tim because uh, money 2020 is coming um in amsterdam in june again so um i no doubt you will be there so wh what are you most looking forward to by going to money 2020 where do you look for 
I think for me, there are very few conferences that I would go to in a year, maybe two or three. Money 2020 would certainly be one of them um, where I would look to attend. I think having not been for the last few years during COVID, I, for me, the opportunity to meet a large number of both key investors and founders in a compressed period of time is extraordinarily valuable. I'd love to say I go there and listen to the content. Don't, don't lie here, Tim. Don't, don't lie in the podcast. <laughs> um, I'd love to. One year, one year I will. But, you know, I would do probably 50 or 60 meetings in those three days, 15 to 20 minute meetings. And that saves me weeks. Uh, and that's the practicality of it. And you get, if you have the right people uh, in the room, uh, then you can shortcut um, a lot of uh, conversations and it stimulates ideas, it stimulates deal flow, uh, and, it, and it's allowing you to reconnect, which after two years, um, we all need to do. Yeah, I totally agree. It gives totally us a agree. lot of positive energy. I think so too. Absolutely. Well, this is, uh, now we come to, um, to the end of the podcast, uh, Tim, and uh, obviously we, um, we would like to, uh, to uh, thank you very much and uh, and i hope we will see you at uh, money 2020 in june thank you brian thank you connie it was a pleasure being with you this morning for people wanting to lecture themselves and others on anything fintech and smart vcs i suggest you follow tim closely as he and his team continue to fund and attract more fintech ventures on Twitter, LinkedIn, and at augmentum.vc. Curious which music weekend favorites Tim brought with him? Check out www.fintechcappuccino.com slash Tim Levine. Tim, thank you for joining us here at the Virtual Kitchen Table in the Fintech Cappuccino podcast. And thank you for listening to Fintech Cappuccino. Don't want to miss another cup? Subscribe to our podcast via Spotify, iTunes, or where you like to listen to your podcasts. And please do give us a like or a review so many more fintech cappuccino lovers can find us. So please join us again on Saturday morning at 9. We'll have the coffee ready just the way you like it. Enjoy the weekend, Tim and all. All right, thanks. <laughs>